So when I was thinking about this talk today, I uh, went to my um, resource on love, which is a book written by four, four to eight-year-olds um, who seem to have a keener perception than most of us. So here's some great teachings from the book of children on love. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands have got arthritis too. That is love. Or this one, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Isn't that beautiful? Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. And when you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. And lastly, from a fourth grader, I'm not rushing into this love business. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. <laughs> I wonder where that fourth grader is now. <laughs> so how many of you were watching the Olympics these last few weeks? Quite a few. How many of you are into figure skating? Yes, me too. I'm a big figure skating fan. So those of you who weren't watching, it's always funny talking about things that happen in sports or on TV when you teach at Spirit Rock because at least half the room doesn't watch TV or watch sports. But anyhow, I'm sure most of you heard about this one Canadian skater, Joni Rochette, who um, was competing in the figure skating. And her mother, who introduced her to the Olympics, to skating when she was young, um, died on the way to the Olympics. And so she had to go on the ice about two or three days after, two days, I think. It was very soon after her mother died of a sudden heart attack, unexpected heart attack. And it was quite phenomenal to watch this woman with this heart full of love, just completely vulnerable and open and ripped apart with this sudden loss and perform this very exquisite piece of uh, ice skating, figure skating. Um, and the whole room, the whole auditorium, 14,000 people, you know, just was weeping at the, the intensity of the love and the, the pain and the loss. And the, so and the commentators were weeping and everybody was, I was weeping and <laughs> I'm sure the whole nation was weeping. Um, and just, just was such a beautiful sort of honoring of, of, the, of the human soul and its vulnerability and also its capacity to love, its capacity to feel hurt, its capacity to, to strive on despite all of that, to hold that, to um, also feel the tremendous compassion that was present and 
the healing and the love. And then she went on a few days later to, to perform. And she ended up getting a bronze medal. And it was the same thing, that, that vulnerability was still there, and the tears, and the love, and the loss. And it was a very, I think it was the highlight of the Olympics for me to see that, the beauty of the human spirit and her spirit, which was very, very, very exquisite. I thought it was a great teaching on love. And here we are in the middle of a very competitive environment at the Olympics, where people have worked for decades to, to, to get to the peak of their <coughs> career. And then what's really there is it's a lot of human stories and human heart and labor and love. And so I want to talk a little about love this evening. I was recently with a teacher who was reminding he was reminded of when his teacher, uh, s he asked his teacher, why don't you ever talk about love? You know, you Buddhists, you talk all about compassion all the time, but you never talk about love. And that's really, you know, that's, that's so close to our experience. And, it was, you know, and I, I've often wondered that myself. And, and the teacher's answer was that um, we teach about compassion because compassion opens the heart, and we, don't, we choose not to, to use the word love because love leads to attachment and uh, creates a lot of suffering and confusion. So that's one perspective. Uh, and maybe you've had some of you had that question too, how come we don't talk more explicitly about love? We talk about metta, which is a quality of love. It's, it's a quality of unconditional kindness and friendliness and warmth and positive regard. And compassion is when the heart meets suffering and pain like it did on that night, or watching the TV and seeing all the millions of people displaced in Chile with the latest tragedy and devastation on, on that's befalling us. And the, the, the heart's response just to seeing the, 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 how many lives get ripped apart in just a few seconds. So, I think some of the confusion between the, around the language and the terminology is, is, is really because of uh, a translation problem uh, and a language issue. So, Buddhism, of course, talks a lot, teaches a lot about the power of attachment, the power of attachment, how we wrap ourselves around things, people, objects, desires, expectations, needs, goals. And the power of attachment causes a lot of tremendous suffering to ourselves and others. It was interesting for me watching the, the difference between watching the ice skating and then watching the ice hockey, where I had a little more attachment to the outcome, <laughs> as I'm sure many other people did. Um, and you know, just seeing, just in something as, as benign as a, as a hockey game, you know, not so benign for the people who are really into it, but um, just how that can close the heart. You know, I, I was watching these emails go around and uh, Facebook messages about Americans, Canadians, and all this kind of rivalry. And uh, but if we go back to to this. I think there's a misunderstanding between uh, the Asian teachings of attachment and what we're now understanding through the last few decades of attachment theory uh, 
and the power of attachment and the, the, the healthy need for attachment as we, as we come into this world, as we bond, as we, as we grow in that relationship with our caregivers. You know, as we come into this world, it's necessary, it's actually we can't survive without some quality of attachment, some quality of healthy connection with mother or whoever the primary caregiver is. So that is absolutely a lifeline. It's not just uh, something that's an add-on to getting our material needs met, but that we, you know, babies die if they don't have that kind of love. And Dalai Lama put it this way, even though I didn't think he was a child psychologist, but he said, we can live without religion and meditation, but we cannot survive without human affection. So think about what your life would be like if it didn't have affection or love. Or some, you know, no matter how difficult our childhoods may have been, we wouldn't be here if there wasn't some quality of presence, of loving presence, that helped us through that very tender, vulnerable early early months and early years. This is from Chris White, who's a psychologist and a doctor, actually, and also a yogi here. He said, when the attachment with the parent is secure, the adult is modeling the capacities necessary for intimacy and social interaction and providing the child with a secure base from which to explore and learn about their world and the people in it. This safety is the optimal biological condition from which to mature through the lifespan. And so a lot of research has been done about this, this these early years and these early, this, particularly the first you know, six to nine months of attachment and how crucial that is in how we form, how we that it's such a strong imprint and template on which we then receive and interpret experience in our interaction with the world. So dear friends of mine just had a uh, baby about mm, two weeks now, two weeks ago, and um, everything was going well until the, the birth, and then there was some, some unforeseen difficulties, and so uh, they rushed into uh, C-section, and there was a lot of difficulties with the baby. The baby um, had difficulty, uh, basically was losing blood back into the mother and came out very pale and emaciated and quite close to death. And so they were, he was taken to um, UCSF for about a week of blood transfusions and very intense um, uh, medical work and probes into the brain and just, you know, different things going into every orifice and out of every orifice. And, um, and my friends who were completely, you know, traumatized by the whole experience, as I'm sure the baby was, um, and he what, one of the things he talked about was how difficult it was not to be able to hold his baby. You know, that there was all these probes and tubes and wires and monitors and and you know, baby so small that it was, it, was, it was impossible to actually have that much human contact. And they were doing a 24-hour, um, you know, keeping watch to just, just to be there, you know, in his presence and support him. And, and he would say he'd spend a few hours with the baby and holding or touching or trying to have some contact. And then we'd go out to his car and just weep. It was so distressing not to have that bond and connection And then they, they, they had the transfusion, and it turned out to be uh, successful. Um, and even the doctor came out at, at some point, and um, who did the operation, who hadn't done the operation, was, was 
taking guidance from the telephone about how to do this operation because uh, they hadn't had a baby like this in about 15 years. And the doctor also came on very teary, very emotional, and just, just the, being around that young presence, that tenderness, the vulnerability of life and how it touches us. So I wanted to share this story that I love to read sometimes um, that's about this experience from the other side, from, uh, from the experience of a nurse who works on one of these preemie wards. And it speaks to the, the power of, of love in this setting and also the, the, the quality of loving presence that comes out when we're around newborns. He says, here in a, in a neonatal intensive care unit, you, inc- you see incredible beauty and incredible pain. And you have to figure out how to be with both. The children are beautiful because you just get to know them. You can't nurse them. You can't really nurse them without knowing them. And you can't know them, really know them, without seeing their beauty. What can be more beautiful than innocence? And that affects all their features, their tininess, the eyes, the fingers, the sound of their part. Just their breath can move you with its beauty. Part of it seems to come from how fragile they are, how uncertain it is, and how long they'll be here. The pictures on the surface, though, is also terribly grim. A room full of these little ones many of whom are right on the edge of life and death, and some of whose faces and movements are pretty distressing. It was the use of machines and extraordinary medical measures that moved several of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't there, though, there was that terrible tendency to keep it impersonal, to keep your distance, and you know, that wasn't any good for the children, for the children least of all. So a group of us began to talk and to be with the children more. And when it got too hard, we'd break down, we'd support each other and talk it over. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began began this new practice of holding infants when the time would come for them to die. It wasn't a decision as much as something we'd, we'd become ready to do. So at the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker, and we'd sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart, because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go, and the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitored as brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. You feel 10 dozen things at once, terrible sadness because you become attached to the child, but glad too because their suffering is about to end. Maybe anger at the world, at God, at whatever, for allowing this to happen. And such empathy for the parents, and something like awe and wonder, like these must be some kind of, there must be some kind of explanation for all of this which you don't yet understand. But patience too, the things become more clear in time, and peace of mind because you're doing the best you can, and humble to be present at such a moment, all of the above, all at once. So just notice what's happening in, in your heart as you listen to that story. Listen to the vulnerability that we all are subject to at some point in our lives. So about three or four days ago, I got to meet the little guy um, about a week ago. Um, Just taking them food and uh, didn't have any machines or things coming out of him or wires. And he was just pure, delicious infant in his 
innocence and beauty and vulnerability and uh, mostly sleeping on his mom's breast. And, and it was just so, I always loved to be around newborns because they have such amazing presence. There's so much love fills the space, like from the mom, the baby, father, anybody who's around, there's just this air of sweetness. And the heart can't help respond with that sense of love and tenderness and care. So when we, according to some perspectives anyway, when we come into this world, you know, when we're still in that oceanic sense of non-separation, I think I spoke to this a little last week, when we first take birth, there isn't that sense of me. There isn't a sense of personality. There isn't even a sense of separation. There's just a sense of being one with all that is, mostly merged with mom, mostly suffused with a quality of love, except when the instinctual needs come over and you want to be fed or bathed or you know, diaper changed. And you feel that quality of love. It's very palpable. It's very real. It's very powerful. And, as, and according to certain perspectives, that what happens as, as we come into this world with that quality of boundless love that's not separate, that's not feeling distinct, not yet sort of being trained or um, influenced by the development of the ego structure, there's a sense of unity, a sense of oneness that we can still touch and taste as we get older, but becomes more and more fleeting. And what supplants that initially is the connection with, with the mother, with the caregiver, a sense, of, a sense of love that becomes associated with something outside of ourselves. In the beginning, it was a sense of love that was just permeating everything. And then after a time, it becomes structured into a sensing that the love is coming from outside of myself which, of course, is essential and necessary, but it conditions a certain orientation that lasts most of our lives, if not all of our lives, that the source of love and the channel of love comes from where? It comes from outside of ourselves. It's not part of who we are. We, 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 we for some reason, go through a period of amnesia forgetting the love that's already in our own being, in our own hearts, in the fabric of who we are. And so as, the, and as we develop over the years, we become more and more uh, disconnected from the love that resides within, and we become more firmly entrenched in the belief that we have to get love, to feel love, to know love, to taste love. We have to be with another, or be with some kind of experience that generates that. So to our ego structure, that's very true. To the ego, love is, lo the ego doesn't really have so much capacity to know love in our own being. It really is oriented towards external gratification. How can I find, how can I get love? How can I be loved? How can I be seen? How can I be known? How can I be held? How can I be loved for who I am or what I am? 
And so when we spend time with ourselves, when we're alone, either physically or, or, or it could be in a crowd of people, but even particularly when we're, on al- when we're alone, we can tend to touch into that feeling of lack or scarcity, right? that something's missing, something that needs to be filled, that needs to be met by another. Does this sound familiar? Anybody know this experience? So it becomes hard to be with ourselves because we feel the, into this kind of this kind of lack, this this emptiness, this this something missingness, and it gets very painful to be disconnected from knowing our nature as essentially loving, essentially boundless, essentially non-separate. And so what do we do? We get really busy distracting ourselves. Either distracting ourselves from the feeling of lack, feeling deficient, or we get busy looking for it outside, you know, get busy, how do I, how do I strategize, how do I navigate this world to find love, to find that one, the one who will provide that kind of love, since I can't seem to access it in myself, for myself. You know, we also live in this culture that, that drums this into us in every way possible, that love is found you know, in the perfect soulmate. And you'll, you know, you'll fall in love, and you'll be in love forever, and you can watch lots of movies to confirm it. And I was just <laughs> you know, coming over here and listening to the radio and uh, you know, listening to you know, these pretty cool songs about love and loving. And, but it was the, the common theme was in the last song I came in when I came into Spirit Rock was, um, I just haven't found you yet. <laughs> you know, which really is kind of a sort of a thread for all those songs. I haven't found you yet, or when I find you, it will be like this, or, you know. So no wonder we latch on to our partners or to the hope of a partner, or since we can't seem to know that in ourselves so easily. No wonder we get a little desperate sometimes and needy and longing. Margaret Anderson wrote, in real love you want the other person's good. In romantic love you just want the other person. <laughs> so we distract ourselves with, with you know, it's, it's, a, it's a misguided search for love is really what it is. It's not wrong. It's something human. It's what we all do. We all seek companionship. We all seek love. We all seek relationship. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful avenue of human life and exploration. It's a beautiful thing when your spiritual life can also merge and flow with that. Sometimes that happens for people, not always. (coughs) It's a beautiful place, a platform to explore what love is, especially as the relationship deepens and we move beyond the projection and the, the myth and the the Hollywood romance, and actually get to see there's another human being here. And it's why we need so much compassion for ourselves on this journey. Because we, you know, there's a sort of strange irony in this human life that we get born, we, we come into this world with a sense of, the sense of, knowing or touching this oceanic quality of being, of love, of presence. 
and then we get we get we get become more ossified into this separate, isolated, fragmented sense of self. This hardened egoic structure. And then you you know at some point exhausted all sources of happiness in the world, and you start looking for questions, answers in the spiritual world, and most spiritual teachings will say, well, you're not really separate. You're not really who you think you are. Love is ultimately who you are. You have to dissolve these seeming appearances of separation that you've worked so hard to develop. So one of the one of the, the holes or the deficiencies that, that's so difficult to be with with this when we when we touch into this lack around knowing ourselves as love, knowing our loving nature, knowing the loving heart, is we feel that somehow there must be something wrong with us. If we're not getting, receiving, finding true love, then somehow that must be, or we didn't receive that, didn't feel that growing up, then there must be something flawed. It's our only interpretation that, that, makes, that makes the world livable as we grow up is, well, there must be something. My parents can't, there can't be something wrong with them. They're, they're perfect as they are, right? We all know our perf- parents are perfect. <laughs> so we, we internalize it. There's something wrong with us. There's some, not only do we feel disconnected from love, but it's really our fault. It's our problem. Very painful hole we can fall into. And how many of you feel that, the sense that something wrong with you that the, the reason that there's not a true connection with love or a deeper connection with love is because of something lacking somewhere. How many of us feel that we don't have to go searching or seeking for love outside of ourselves? How many of us firmly believe that it's right here all the time? We'll do a survey at the end. This quote from Nisargadatta that I read earlier, that which you are, your true self, you love it, and whatever you do, you do for your own happiness. To find it, to know it, to cherish it is your basic urge. Since time and more you loved yourself, but not wisely, use your mind and body wisely in the service and love of your own self. That is all. So the meditation journey, the spiritual journey, whatever journey you happen to be on in the pursuit of knowing yourselves, is a journey calling us back to ourselves. You know, we spend so much of our time looking outside as a natural, obvious thing to do. We want to find happiness, want to find connection. Well, we look outside of ourselves. And that, you know, works, you know, some of the time. There's some works for a while, and um, over time we see that it doesn't quite live up to what's advertised. There's this, um, this ad from the, from where was it, from the New Yorker, these two goldfish swimming in a little bowl, no, swimming in the ocean. And one goldfish says to the other, well, you know, what do you want to get out of life? What, you know, what's your dream? You know, what do you hope for? And the goldfish says, you know, I want the, the, the round glass bowl, the little colored gravel, and the plastic castle, you know. 
then I'll be set, you know. <laughs> Swimming in this vast ocean, you know, I want the little... And that's what we're like, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't see who we are in our, in our essence, in our beauty, in our potential, in our nature. And we go, oh, that new Prius looks really good. I know that's going to do it, you know, I'll be good to the environment too. Or that person looks yummy, or that chocolate cake will really satisfy me tonight. Simple desires. I was talking to a to a meditation student recently, and she was talking about her retreat, and she said that on her retreat she was learning to fall back in love with herself. And she's learning how to love herself through this practice, through meditation, not in a narcissistic, grandiose way, but just to to to, to become re-enchanted with ourselves. You know, we've mostly become disenchanted with ourselves. We have so many parts of ourselves that we reject, that we don't like, that we're uncomfortable with, that we'd rather disappeared, or we could borrow some from somebody else. And so we lose that, that capacity to, to look at ourselves with marvel, with wonder, with beauty, with awe, with fascination. So in the beginning, in the meditation journey, sometimes we might view this idea of being alone, aloneness, as something very scary and very terrifying. Our experience in the past may not have been so good. Because, as I said, we start we, in that place, it feels like we feel separate. We feel alone. We feel disconnected from either everybody else or from our own goodness, our own depth, our own nature. To the ego, it feels like like a death. There's no support. There's no external gratification. And at some point, something starts to shift in our in our journey, in our practice, in our meditation, where we start to feel a little more comfortable in that aloneness. We start to feel more at ease, more safe, more peaceful, more familiar, more like this is actually. A comfortable home to take to take rest in to to inhabit and we come to see that that aloneness can become very exquisite that we come to be at home in the truth of who we are just however we are whatever we're doing it could be washing the dishes it could be cooking the dinner washing the car and there's a certain sense of intimacy with ourselves, a certain sense of connection, a certain sense of unity. And as we feel more integrated in our aloneness or, or, or ease with ourselves, we start to see that we're actually at ease with everything else. Some of the hardening of our sense of separation comes from the hardness we have towards ourselves, the hardness of heart that we've developed towards ourselves. And as that softens, as, as that eases with us with the quality of love and kindness, then that sense of hardness of boundary starts to soften. We feel a little more connected, a little less isolated, a little more at ease in the world. And also at, over time we start to sense that, that that aloneness isn't this kind of cool emptiness that sometimes we might hear in in these in these teachings. Um, it's not an emptiness that's, that's, that's void, that's nothing there. 
but it's an emptiness that's filled with love, with compassion, with presence, with a kind presence. I once had a student who was exploring uh, the teachings on emptiness, and she was very familiar with the cool quality of awareness and wakefulness and emptiness. And, um, and I just asked, I said, you know, take a look. See, see what's also filling that presence. What's filling that space? And over time, she began to see that it was not separate from, from the loving heart. This is again from Sri Nisargadatta, who was a really uh, fine Advaita Vedanta teacher in India and Bombay. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. And I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like, but I call it love. Love says I'm everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Since at any point of time and space, I can be both the subject and the object of experience. I express it by saying that I am both and neither and beyond. So when we get a little taste of this capacity to be alone with ourselves, to sense how love is not separate from that aloneness, the true love really arises when we're, when we're fully independent, when we know our aloneness, comfortable in our aloneness, and there's no need to feel completed by another, yet there's a, there's, then there becomes that union, that capacity for relationship becomes joyous because it's not so fueled by the fear of being alone, by a sense of scarcity. It's a much richer, more fuller place to enter into union. So it's much less dependent on how the other is. There's a sense of security in being comfortable with whatever arises. So this is from Thomas Merton, who spent a lot of time in solitude as a, as a monk. He said, it is, it is deep in solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say, not for what they do. So I don't think he's speaking about hanging out in some beautiful room in Gethsemane Monastery, not having to deal with the tiresome <laughs> irksomeness of people. <laughs> oh, I love them all. I just don't have to deal with them. <laughs> he's talking about a genuine comfort with himself. And then how that gives him the capacity to really, to really interact, to really relate. And out of that capacity to be alone, there also becomes a quality of feel, fearless, fearlessness in the love. Because we're not trying to bend and yield ourselves to be something and say the right thing or do the right thing, but actually we're more ourselves more free to be ourselves. And that love that we feel that we can know and taste in that has a love for the truth. 
as we deepen in this practice, what becomes paramount is a love of the truth. This practice is, you know, is a practice of loving what is, loving what's true, meeting what's true, accepting what's true, which are all expressions of love. You know, how can you meditate? How can you practice mindfulness if there's not some quality of love, some quality, some capacity to meet, to allow, to open, to embrace, to invite your self, your experience, to be as it is. If our practice is devoid of love, there's a kind of a coolness in it, and so easily slips in, the awareness practice so easily slips into judgment and rejection and division. So it's not necessarily how we often talk about it, but for myself, the, 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 the qualities of love and awareness are not separate. The mindfulness has within it qualities of love. So, so think about that as you practice. What is the quality of presence? What's the quality of kindness? What's the quality of love that enters and leaves that realm? And as we, as we fall in love with the truth or we fall in love with what's true, learn to love what's true, we also, see, we also begin to see that what is true is beautiful. The truth has a certain beauty in it. Because we're, not, we're no longer trapped in the, in, the, in, the, in the web of our preferences and likes and dislikes. We're just allowing what is to be. John Keats once famously wrote in the English poet, truth is beauty and beauty truth. And we can sense this with our practice. When we, come, when we, when we bring this quality of presence to meet what's just here in the present moment, we're learning how to, to love what's true, to meet it with acceptance, with kindness. I think it's one of the reasons why we, we feel that love around babies, because they're just being fully themselves. Same with children. They're being fully themselves before they've been you know, conditioned to worry about how they are and how they're being perceived. And there's just a certain spontaneity and, and playfulness and ease that's very beautiful in its, in its innocence. Loving the feedback, you know. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> and then when we don't, we notice how painful that is. Pain is the universe's way of saying we're not in alignment with the truth. It's a, it's a perfect feedback mechanism. When we step out of alignment with what's true, when we, when we start to resist and fight what's true, we suffer. I was writing this talk today, and uh, I live in a very, very, very quiet, I basically live in the, almost in the woods. It's kind of in the woods. And um, so 
for some reason, some dog showed up down the hill and proceeded to bark really loud <laughs> all afternoon. And I definitely went in and out of love of the truth. <laughs> Sometimes like, oh, just a dog being a dog and having a good time barking at squirrels or whatever he was doing. Other times it was, why don't you shut up? <laughs> why doesn't the owner come out and take the dog inside and give it some bone or something? <laughs> why don't I give it a bone? <laughs> and then we have to love that. We have to, you know, allow th for that too, allow for our human reaction to experience. It's not, it's not making some sort of candy, you know, you know, frosted, icing, sugar-coated view of how we should be. It's loving, loving what is. It's loving the, all of it, loving the whole of it, including how we are and our reactions. It's the same thing when we're with a friend or a lover or someone in our family or at work, and we see them being themselves. We see them coming into themselves. Sometimes we see people grow into themselves and mature and blossom. And it's beautiful when we see that. We're touched by the, the, the integrity and the truthfulness of it. And we can't help but love them even more as people grow into themselves and blossom and shine into themselves. We can't help but love them. It's a beautiful thing. And when we see someone not being themselves or being, you know, stifling their, their, their who they are, it can feel painful. We, we, you know, we can feel that's that the, the harm that's caused when we don't allow ourselves to be who we are or when they don't. And one of the blessings of my work is I get to work with a lot of students on retreat. And one of the things that happens as we, as we go deep in retreat is we touch deep parts of ourselves that we haven't known, tasted. And we come to, there's all kinds of things start to blossom and grow and shine. And people just glow with, with in, in a kind of radiance with the truth. It's very beautiful. So metta, as it's usually taught, this quality of loving-kindness is, is referred to as this boundless quality of heart. What, what's not so often talked about is the personal quality of that. That yes, we have capacity to have this boundless heart that can love all beings equally. That's the, that's the capacity of the heart. But it also comes through our human form and our human heart and our history and our personality. And it encounters all these other beautiful bodies, personalities, histories, people. And is asking the question, how do, how do we bring that into our relationships? How do we bring that quality to each other, to love one another? This is from Romeo and Juliet. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep, the more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. So one of the things I know about love is it's a beautiful generosity of the heart. As is feedback, is a generous offering of the universe to our ears. This is from Mark Twain. 
After all these, this is from uh, his, from Adam, in Adam's diary. After all these years, I see that I was mistaken about Eve in the beginning. It is better to live outside the garden with her than inside it without her. So, you know, here we are in this world and with the invitation to, to you know, that we're asked how do we, how do we show up in this world? How do we relate? How do we engage? How do we love? How do we bring this quality, this boundless quality of heart into our everyday relationships, communication, conversations, family, children, parents? Which is probably the hardest thing that we do, if not the hardest. Wilka said, for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks, the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is just a preparation. And that doesn't mean confined to intimate relationship, but really how we love all of life, how we bring this quality of heartfulness into our relationships. And we're challenged every day, every hour, by how to do this with our partners, with our neighbors, with our children, with our family, with our co-workers, with our bosses we don't like, with people we don't like, with drivers that are annoying and people who take too long at the supermarket checkout and old enemies and people who've hurt us and rejected us or disappointed us or frustrate us or threaten us or This is one of the, the great challenges of being on this path. How do we learn to live a life of love? And part of what I've come to discover is it is one of the doorways that supports this exploration is this understanding of the relationship between aloneness and love. That, that, like so many things, how we are in relationship to ourselves, how we embrace, how we open, how we care, how we, how we attune to ourselves and our own nature, is naturally what unfolded, naturally what expresses itself in the context of relationships. How can we take care of another if we can't take care of ourselves? How can we love another if we can't love ourselves? is the second part of the reading from the Sagadari. He says, Be true to your own self and love yourself absolutely. Do not pretend that you love others as yourself unless you have realized them as to be one with yourself. Don't pretend to be what you are not. Don't refuse to be what you are.
So I'll close with this quote from D.H. Lawrence, who wrote a lot about love in many beautiful ways, both the embroiled, messy, sticky kind, and also the, the purity of love that's possible. He said, those who go looking for love never find love. Those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love, and they never have to go looking for it. Only the loving find love, and they never have to go looking for it. So let's just take a moment, and we'll sit together. So we'll just do. A, I'll do a couple of guided things. First is just I'm going to read this this part of a poem from Rumi, and um, just just taking us towards ourselves. You are the only faithful student you have. All the others leave eventually. Have you been making yourself shallow with making other eminent? Just remember when you're in union. You don't have to fear that you'll be drained. The command comes to speak, and you feel the ocean moving through you. Then it comes. Be silent as when the rain stops, and the trees in the orchard begin to draw moisture up into themselves. goes on to say, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. So just take a moment as we, as we sit, just to ask yourselves, what are those barriers within yourself that you have built against love, around love? Which ways has the heart closed, been hurt, been disappointed? Can we bring a loving presence to, to those places that are closed? It's very easy to reject those places, the hurt, the painful, And in what ways do you know love in yourself as yourself? In what ways can you sense that, feel that, know that, access that?
call it Rilke, I want to unfold, let no place in me hold itself closed, for where I am closed, I am false. So thank you for your attention this evening. Um, it would be great if you could help us help our volunteers by stacking your chairs and um, help tidying up the hall, put your cushions back. And uh, next week, somebody will be here to teach, and I don't know who it is. <laughs> who? Marlena Jones will be here next week. Thank you. Drive safe, drive right as you go out Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.